Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hello from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and Don are here this morning. And we're going to talk about something that nobody really wants to talk about. That's going to be some supply chain issues. Not that any of us are all that qualified to talk about supply, (laughs) but we do field a lot of questions related to products and choosing products and ways to devise plans, I guess, backup plans and backups to the backup plans. Well, and this will be more tuned to broad brushstrokes focused on the 2022 season because we're all aware of, and we sat here talking about before you really hit record, that we've been having these conversations now dating back well into 2021 based on some of the things that happened last year. Yeah. Don mentioned some of the insecticide stuff. And for me, the first thing that really cropped up last year was Liberty and the inadequate volume of Liberty. We don't spray a lot of Liberty now, but there were questions about availability, particularly on our cotton acres within list cotton. And I guess moving into the fall, I started having conversations with folks about herbicide programs for this crop last fall, early last fall, like right after harvest. So there was a lot of anticipation and buildup to the point that we're at now, which is for me, full-blown burndown season. So that's kind of our plan this morning. I hope that we say something that sounds remotely intelligent and not too far out of line, but because again, we're none of us are qualified really to talk about it beyond our own lane that we all work in, whether mine being weed control and Don with insects and Tom with diseases. But I want to ask y'all a question before we start because you know what's gonna <laughs> we're gonna miss that. And I'll just pose this can't be serious all the time. Yeah, I'll just pose this to both of you. I've been saving this one for Don, Tom, uh-uh. since last year. Oh, boy. Because when you rattle around inside that brain of Don's, you never know what's going to come out. And it's most often pretty epic. So, Don, in your opinion, what is the greatest rock and roll song of all time? Hmm. That is a very deep question. It is. And it it may not be a question you can answer on the spur of the moment. Oh, I I have my choice already. I, I have... Numerous candidates. Well, I know, but you got to, there's only one. There's only one number one. If you're not first, you're last, Don. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Ricky. <laughs> well, it's that's so perspective and opinion related. This. And probably mood. Absolutely, it's mood related. Maybe back in the day, not to hearken to a day of old, but when you had hair and could drive down the road and open the windows and feel the wind in your hair. Well, I can still do that, all three of them. I understand. Yeah, I know. And I know this is not going to really satisfy you. Hey, just before you say anything, just consider the fact that somewhere Hank Jones is on pins and needles waiting to hear what's about to come out of your mouth. I promise he is holding his breath. I'm going to do the best I can, which is give you a top two. I'll allow it. Leonard Skinner, Sweet Home Alabama. And kiss, rock and roll all night. Ah, I can't disagree that those are Don's, in Don's opinion, the greatest rock and roll songs of all time. Tommy, care to take a stab? I had all along the Watchtower Hendrix. Solid. Which I, I think I can't is, argue with that either. 
is probably one of the greatest Dylan creations. But I think Jimmy's version is, and, and every time I hear it on the radio, every time I hear it somewhere, I stop and I listen to it because I think it is, you can pick something out of that song just about every time you listen to it. It's one of the greatest rock and roll songs of all I time. I agree. And well ahead of its time. I agree. And I can make a case for another one, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix doing Little Wing. Oh, yeah. Both great versions. Fantastic songs. See, I told you, Don <laughs> never disappoints. No, he doesn't. Never. Just remember, you opened that can of worms. I did. I but, did. And I, and I tell you, I've been saving that. I started to do it one day last summer when you were in here. And I thought, no, the time is not right. You could catch me on the right day, and there might be even a pausing song in that list. I was more hoping for a Judas Priest song, but eh. again... Um, those 80s. All right. I'm, I'm uh, partial to the meatloaf every now and then, too. <laughs> I, look, I just like music. The I kind of listen to just late, about everything. The late, great meatloaf. The late, great meatloaf. Yeah, I'm not exactly happy that we have to say that now. For our younger listeners, meatloaf is a... Was. An, a, yeah, was an actual person. Marvin Lee Aday. Who was in addition <laughs> to a... The culture, man. To a stellar lyricist and singer in his own right he was also an actor in seriousness the supply problems that we're anticipating call it a challenge let's call it a challenge i think in my world a supply is can i get this herbicide whether it's roundup whether it's liberty whether it's dual the ones that we know are in in short supply but really, it's bigger than that. It's everything from where that product is, the components of a product or source assembled, moved all the way to the farm, and then it's back out too because our farmers are manufacturers in themselves, and they're moving product as well. And I think farmers are one of the few, I guess manufacturers is a word I want to use, but one of the few cogs in an industrial wheel that are they're, they're getting it from both ends, right? They're at the bottom of a supply chain, but they're also at the top of another supply chain. They're at the end of One. inputs, and they're the beginning of the other because they produce the raw materials, yeah. i.e. the crop that goes on right. down yeah. the road. Yeah, whether it's going into soybean oil or a bag of salad, Corn you know, meal. Depending, depending on what they're doing. As I've thought about this, that was one of the biggest things that I noticed where my perspective was limited because like I said, we stay in our own lanes and my lanes herbicides. Well, and with the herbicides in mind, how are we doing when it comes to product availability for burn down? Do you have any insight it, on that? Any it conversations? Has de- it has depended on who you talk to. And the ones that I mentioned there a second ago are the ones that you hear about. Roundup is expensive and and the supply is questionable, too. Another one you've heard about is dual. That was going all the way back to the fall. Of course, we used a lot of dual during the fall for ryegrass treatments as a, as a residual. And so big volume going out. And so that was one that was getting talked about. And I had a question there. about that because you mentioned that in one of the grower meetings. That And I just wonder if you got any more insight on it. said you weren't sure if that was you know, name brand dual or metolachlor in general. Duels kind of like Roundup. That main trade name 
is kind of a common name. You know, okay. like, like, kind of like it, talking about a crescent wrench. Yeah. Every adjustable wrench, no matter who made it, is a crescent wrench. That's right. Okay. That's right. All the glyphosate's Roundup. Okay. And all the Matolachlor is dual. I don't, the word Matolachlor doesn't come out of my mouth a lot when I'm having a conversation about yeah. designing okay. a herbicide. Well, program. I mean, I was just unclear because you'd made that comment that, so apparently it's, you know, anything with that active is. I, that's that that's the sense I get from the conversations that I have. Another one's clethodim, and like I said before we started, Tom, I don't know that is the volume of clethodim not there, or is the demand for clethodim up because of related to the price of Roundup or or glyphosate products, and therefore we're choosing to substitute clethodim in applications that it may not have been in were the price of Roundup more agreeable. I'm looking at you just to unpack that in my mind. No, and I don't know that anything I just said was even accurate. I'm just putting it together from conversations that I've had over the past five or six weeks. Well, I mean, uh, we're seeing that in several situations, but some, like you said, some of this is not clear whether the physical product is not there or we've had the same as we did, we just have a bigger demand for it. And I heard a guy talk about <clears throat> these kind of problems the other day, and you see this on the news too. There was some pre-buying stuff going on too in anticipation of products being short. So maybe we scarfed up some last fall when we could lay our hands on it. Mm-hmm. And you saw that in the fall on the news talking about Christmas and where you're going to be able to get stuff. And, a little bit you know, of panic buying. Yeah, I get, yeah, that would be the way to describe it, Don, panic buying. I don't know if it was, in this case, it was bona fide panic, but maybe concerned buying. You never know. I mean, if it looks like, if it's a good deal and, you know, you can swing it, you know, financially, it may not be a bad idea to do it up front because you know you're going to need it. Yeah. So. And I don't want to monopolize the conversation around herbicides, but we are you know, right here in the middle of burn down time. So a question I'd like to hear your thoughts on. Moving into the crop, what options do we have at this point? So say we're anywhere from four to eight weeks in front of planting. What options do we have for trimming costs? From an entomology standpoint, that is a almost impossible question to answer because until we, you know, get a crop in the ground and start scouting and know what our insect, you know, pressure population is going to be, we can't answer that with the exception of use the thresholds. That is, is about as good as I can do now. That will keep you from spending money that that's not necessary. But as far as, say, for example, cotton. I cannot tell you how many plant bug applications you're going to need. We'll find that out as we get in the season and start seeing what, you know, the pressure is going to be. And insect populations are very dynamic. And a very wise entomologist from USDA, ARS, Gordon Snodgrass, said, do you never make predictions on insect pressure because they will make you look like a fool every time. You almost could say the same thing from the disease standpoint. You're talking about what the environment's going to do. No earthly idea what the rest of the winter months are going to bring. And those cool temperatures are good for a lot of reasons. 
And when I say that, mostly you beat back any of that green overwintering material and form a kudzu that might factor into a soybean rust epidemic, which the last two years we've seen more soybean rust in this part of the country than we did the, the previous two years to that, just because I think we had more mild winters and we ended up with a, with a tropical system that came a little bit earlier uh, than normal. And the conversation I've tended to get to folks is pay attention to what variety or hybrid you're planting when you're talking about a soybean or corn system and factor a fungicide application based on that varietal decision and don't just make a timed application. And I think that that's a, a really good place to attempt to trim some of those costs uh, because oftentimes I get calls about, you know, I want to I trim a seed treatment off. I said, well, why are we going to trim something off on the front that I think in a lot of cases is really good insurance and it definitely can prevent a train wreck or a replant situation if you get into a big stand failure why don't we look at trimming something towards the back end and one of those timed automatic applications and then try to base what we do from planting through the rest of the season based on what the environment's going to bring and if it's going to throw us a curveball. If southern rust becomes an issue, uh, then you might need to address that with a fungicide application. But I can't sit here now in January, February and tell you whether or not that's going to be a concern. But I think that's something that we should really you know, look down the tunnel and, and make a decision now. Trim off those automatic fungicide applications and save your costs there and focus on putting that towards something else. You're kind of like us, I think, that you can get come up with a ballpark based on last year or the previous five-year average, but nothing very precise. Well, and the data sets that we've generated right now are suggesting that and, and, and this has been the, the mantra for corn. Corn automatic fungicide applications don't tend to be economically beneficial in the data sets that we've generated dating back to 2007. So that really hasn't changed much. And your best alternative there is to attempt to manage southern rust depending upon growth stage and where it is uh, in the general production system and how much of a threat it might be. And you can do some of that based on five-year averages, at least looking at data sets as to yeah. when it came. I'll just talk about just very generally. You can get an idea, but nothing you know that would you know very precise. It's kind of like the military said, a plan's good till first contact. But yeah, that's right. Or like Jason usually says, plan's all great until you get punched in the face, and then things that, change. That would be attributed to the great philosopher Mike Tyson. That's right. And everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So what I hear y'all say is basically use your thresholds and scout your crop. That's the best advice I can have. I have not, I, I cannot say that there's not rumors or, and I won't even call that's not fair to call it rumors, talk going around about this insecticide or that insecticide being short. I haven't heard it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And Don, you know, you and I have had a, some semblance of this conversation several times, and what I have said during those conversations is your stuff is really reactive. you got to go scout yes. a field, see what's there, critters, like as you like to call them, and then treat based on response to what's going on yes. at the time. And, Tom, you're the same way with diseases. And then with mine, a lot of times, with a lot of products, I can tell you, within a reasonable volume, how much of this product or that product you're going to need 
for the next couple of years, assuming your crop mix stays generally the same. There's a lot more proactive planning for weed control than there is for insects or diseases, in my opinion. And it goes back to one of the comments that you make during our conversation is your stuff doesn't get up and fly off. That's right. Or, move, or blow in the wind. Yeah, that's why uh, That's why I'm a weed scientist, not an entomologist. I, I wish mine would drop off on the ground because it would make life a whole lot easier if somebody could actually quantify what you knocked off the plant after you made an application with a fungicide because then you could visually assess how that actually either benefited you or didn't benefit you. My stuff rooted. Thinking about farming, though, in general, we've talked about herbicides to a degree and burn down insecticides and fungicides, but then just general agronomic stuff. Can we adjust any decisions between now and planting time to possibly reduce some costs? Uh, From the agronomic standpoint, and I'm going to put on my pseudo-agronomist hat for this. A lot of it depends on what you've done in the past and, you know, fertility comes to mind. If you have really good high fertility, P and K come to mind because they're, you know, carry over from one year to the next. If you have really high levels and you probably get away with, you know, cutting back or skipping a year. If you're on the fence on the borderline or you're low, you probably can't afford not to do anything because it's going to hurt you on yield and profit on the, on the end of the year. That's, you know, like we've said before, situationally dependent. But, you know, there is some potential there. depends on your fertility plan that you've been on for a while. At the Delta Ag Expo, when we did the panel discussion, that was one thing that Justin McCoy said was that it, at that point, and that was the middle of January, it's not too late to soil test. Absolutely. Then. So if you, for some reason, didn't, didn't pull soil samples in the fall, it's not too late to go sample a field and find out exactly what's going on right now. So maybe you can adjust that decision. pH falls in that too. You said it's situationally dependent. And I think there's a lot of variation there on owned land versus rented land. And, and then the the nuances of lease agreements and stuff like that. So that gets into defining your short-term goals and your long-term goals in the context of fertilizer you always hear the fertilizer guys, and I used to do fertilizer work years ago, but the maximum yield compared with the economic optimum yield. Absolutely. And the economic optimum most often is lower than the, the maximum yield. So you know, keeping those kind of things in mind at this point in the year, it, I think, is, is usually, important too. And usually on – and we always come back to P and K because they're really fit this. Well, and this nitrogen c- in our world is really a non-negotiable. If the crop requires a you nitrogen put input, out. yeah. But P and K is almost a threshold deal. Do you have enough or not? And then if you're at, if you have enough, how far above that line are you? If you're way above it, yeah, you got some wiggle room to you know maybe cut back or skip a year. If you're at the line, well, maybe. If you're below it, well, then you're probably hurting yourself if you don't do something. I mentioned the nitrogen. I think there's some opportunity for maybe adjusting the crop. Different but, crops have because, different requirements. Yeah, different crops have different nitrogen requirements. Then you get into rotations. Are you in a committed 
rotation like a corn cotton rotation you don't necessarily want to break your rotation if you're doing that long term and then if you know if you're in soybean corn rotation you're not really going to swap to cotton because it doesn't take as much nitrogen as corn does because you probably don't have a cotton picker or a way to get it out well then there are some other considerations and since i'm playing it being agronomist a little bit now Come on, i'm having you, to think about it it's all fair game um herbicide program can can impact that there's some things if you're in a corn soybean rotation that you're using in your beans you may not want to move to cotton that's right because then i found this out the hard way cotton and metribuzin do not get along or if you recently picked up a so, piece of ground soybeans and gambit don't get along either. they do, do they not know? either <laughs> don, don maybe boogered up some of his beans corn and femesophen so all that has to be considered if you're talking about adjusting on the fly yes. this time of year. Absolutely. Well, and, uh, and that was my first thought when, when you interrupted and, and said that. I, I didn't want to interrupt your nitrogen comment because that's going to be such a, a potentially limiting nutritional decision. But is there a situation where somebody might look at it and say, I can't get a hold of product X as a herbicide. Do I need to completely change course and choose a different crop? to manage one of the weeds that I've had a historical issue with. And that's a case where you're going to need to hope you had good records from last year to know what was applied, how much was applied, and when it was applied because carryover can be a, a considerable problem. And we've had a fairly dry winter yes, we so have. far. So, so we haven't moved a lot through the profile yeah, yeah, and things not, are going to stay. We're not dissipating a, a lot of stuff. The, I guess, silver lining on that, being warm, you probably had – you know, those periods of warm, you probably had more, you know, microbial degradation than you may have had if it was cooler. Yeah, it just depend on the, the breakdown mechanism yeah. for a particular product. The one last thing I want to throw on the fertility, and this is kind of a shout-out to Trent, Trent Irby on beans. If you, there's any doubt where, you know, you had ground that, you know, went underwater or whatever, if there's any doubt, put an inoculant on those beans. Yes, I'd agree with uh, that. Just because... What's the number? Three hundred, three to four hundred pounds of N that a soybean crop uses to make a sixty bushel. We flew urea on some soybeans twice last year. So, because I changed on the fly, <laughs> and we got them in the ground before <laughs> I realized, man, you know what? That field's been rice and fallow for fifteen years. Yeah. Whoopsie. The general comment is, if we had to fertile, if if we didn't have you know nitrogen fixation in beans and had to fertilize it. I'm not sure we'd be growing any beans. Related to the agronomic discussion, I think planting date is an opportunity to adjust some things. It's definitely an opportunity for weed control. There's some insect insect, uh, ramifications of planting date as well. We often talk about planting date and the optimum planting date, and usually it's related to how late is too late and how much yield loss are we talking about with later planting dates because the weather's gone foul and just planting got backed up? But sitting here at this time of year, at least planning to maybe plant a little bit earlier than anticipated, particularly with corn, because we know we can get corn in early. It's a benefit for weed control. Don mentioned a benefit for insects. It's definitely a benefit on the back end. Maybe you skip an irrigation. Or, or don't have to begin irrigating as soon. I have to give Larry credit. I mean, Larry Heatherly was one of the architects of this early soybean production system. 
and the main reasons were to avoid drought and late season insects and disease pressure and disease yeah, pressure that's and right. as a result we what doubled our average yields in the state over 25 years right. there's yeah some ludicrous number like that that 50, sounds about right 54 bushels is what trent has said th- this year I can remember, and not too many years ago, it was 45, so it's gone up 20%. Well, in the 15 years I've been here, yeah, that's about what it's done. Right. And I'm going to really date myself. When I, I can remember that when, if you made 40 bushels on beans or 200 bushels on corn, you had, you had not only hit a home run, you had won the lottery because that was what everybody shot for in – it was a rare event to do it. So that's how much things have changed. I don't know that we've given any information that's helped make a management decision. I think the point that we've tried to make with this episode is more so this year than in previous years. I think a couple things. One, knowing what your goals are, long-term goals or short-term goals, and then two, having some plans and I mean plans, plural, because chances are you're going to encounter a situation in 2022 where something you want is not going to be available or the price is going to be such that you're going to seek out alternatives. I would say go into it with the mindset of having to be flexible and to adapt to an, a changing, you know, an ever-changing situation. And from a big picture standpoint, don't cut something out of the program that's going to give you a bigger problem in 2023. Yeah, and I and sometimes that's a whole another conversation. But you're absolutely right. That's an easy thing to say right now. And sometimes we all get a little ahead of ourselves and we'll overlook something that's right there as the main point. Case in point with ryegrass. We've got guys that can get aggressive after some ryegrass and then scale back into more maintenance levels. We've even had fields that don't get treated for ryegrass anymore. But with a pigweed, palmer, amaranth being our number one, if you fail to control palmer this year, your grandkids are going to have palmer. That's just a fact. That There's would, a list of things that, you know, what you do has ramifications beyond yeah. this crop. Yeah. And it may be one crop, two crops, eight crops, 20 crops down the road. Yeah. And it's not a massive issue in the plant disease world, but that, I mean, the the pigweed thing is one to. I would say, you know, things like pigweed and fertility and, you know, soil pH are the ones that have the really long-term effects, you know, for, from the insect standpoint, for the most part and the disease, it's usually confined within this crop. Well, on the pH issue, and, and this was something I had to address last year, if you neglect rectifying a pH issue, that will also contribute to what appears to be nutritional issues. Oh, yeah, it affects availability of various things. And it probably impacts any of the soil-applied herbicides that may be super important, not in every instance, but in some pretty important ones. And that's something that I think if you may have a situation whereby you could have questionable pH, stick a probe in the ground and send it out and get it checked because that's one, if you forget about it, it, it's a trickle-down impact and it compounds upon itself. Yeah. My take-home message is have a plan and a backup plan 
and maybe a backup to the backup plan and identify some points in those plans where you can pivot. Absolutely. Like we've got to use this treatment. This timing has to go out, but I have some flexibility in the choice of products I use at this timing. And maybe you have another pivot point in there where I have some flexibility with this timing based on planting date. So maybe if I'm planting at this date, I need to use a bona fide at planting residual herbicide treatment. But if I shift to this planting date, maybe I could back that up and use a pre-plant residual. So just taking some time and identifying some scenarios where you have flexibility and then maybe accompanying that with a list of products that can be mixed and matched. And this would relate to other management strategies as well. I'm just thinking about it in the context of herbicides. So I think that's what I would want folks to remember from the conversation that we've had this morning. And the other thing is we don't know how this situation and availability of things are going to change in the next four to five months either. So that being adaptable is going to be very important because this situation is not static. It's going to change every day. And especially as, you know, we start using things across the country and, you know, things get shifted around. I think, as Jason said, you know, have a plan. I think that's really the big big take-home message from all of this conversation. And I think, um, you know, know that we're here to help. Pick up the phone and call and ask anybody questions. That's, I think we're all willing to have those conversations because there may be some difficult things to address. Um, as usual, you know, Don, thanks. We appreciate you stepping in and putting your agronomist hat on, giving us some, some music background is always important. I'm sure we have plenty of listeners that are just sitting on the edge of their seat, Hank Jones, to try to find out exactly what it is Don will be listening to, maybe even this afternoon as he's driving home. So regular listeners, you know, keep up the comments. We really appreciate that. Um, And this is certainly something we'll continue to do throughout 2022. Thanks. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.